From Omaha, Nebraska to New York City. From planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space. A podcast with no equal. Engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Twitch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. The Switch is on, Battleline Podcast. Really excited to have Christopher Strom coming on this episode. Former Marine, retired NYPD sergeant for the Intelligence Division. He's got an amazing story to tell between all of that and living through 9-11. But yeah, we're recording this a week in advance. Uh, Happy, hope everybody had a good Father's Day. And I was going to ask you uh, how you celebrated your Father's Day. I I got to spend time with my dad, of course. So Uh, No, I spent time with my family. Um, my, My wife and my daughter washed my truck for me, which was awesome for Father's Day. <laughs> that was a good Father's Day gift. Got some donuts and, you know, went and had coffee. But, you know, that's why I like living in a, out in a rural area. I, I think the things we take for granted living in a city, like the, how close a Starbucks is or how close, sure. you know, a, a Target or something, you know, you have to drive a little ways to get to these places, but it can, you make it a trip. So it's even just, you know, going to Starbucks from where we're at now, it's, it's like 30 miles away. But it's, oh, wow. like, hey, let's, let's, but it's, but you know what, when you live in the city, honestly, it takes that long anyway to get from one part of town to the other. So, but it, that's it's, true it's too. Not, yeah. It's not, you know, so it was a nice to spend the day with, with the family and with my family. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I love it. Then me and my wife, what we do, what we like to do together, we went to the gym and, and oh, it's, it's, it's just like good family day. We're hanging out and, and, and um, I said the, the things that we take for granted that when you live in a city that you can do every day, that, really doesn't mean anything because you do it all the time. It's just because, Hey, let's go down to start. Let's go to a coffee shop. Well, when you live in a rural area, it's like, man, this is, we shouldn't take this for granted. This was a nice day just to, just to go to a Starbucks where you got to drive as a family together and, and you enjoy that time together in the car and, and you look forward to it, you get it, you come home and it's like, Hey, that really, that was probably the most fun we've ever had going to get coffee <laughs> in the morning as a family. And I, Which, you know, I remember doing that as a young kid and I just, forgot how, how nice it was. Cause you know, I've never, we I've lived in, you know, Omaha or, or we lived in Tacoma when I was in the, when I was in the military, you know, you, you, we always lived in a, 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 I wouldn't say metropolis like New York city, but we lived in a bigger place where all that stuff's really close by. Yeah. Which brings us to, I mean, I think you're, it sounds like you're allowed to talk about this now. You yeah, moved yeah. to Kansas, yeah, you're officially yeah. in Kansas. Yeah. Beautiful, man. I, it's how I ever wanted to be. I, it's, it's funny. You go to the downtown here where we live in Kansas and when you go to amusement parks, they have old Western town or the old Americana towns. And, you know, they set aside, you go see those things or they're, or they're, they're historic places that you, you stop to see. And I live in, one. it's funny. I go down, you know, it's cool. just walking downtown and it's all the whole historic buildings. And I remember looking around just, to, just yesterday when we were downtown going, man, I can't believe I live here. This is awesome. <laughs> I, I, it's like, man, I, it's like I'm living in a 
in an old Americana town that you find it like Knott's Berry Farms or you find it at a, a bit of big amusement park that people pay to go hang out in. It's like, man, I live here. This is freaking incredible. And the, and the old fort is still here at, you know, it's, and they've kept it up. And no, I, I love it, man. And, and it's a time in my life where this is where I want to be, where, you know, I was younger. I wouldn't, it was like, man, there's nothing to do here. I don't want, well, I, I I'm at a point now in my life. I can be like, you know what? There's enough to do here that it keeps me busy, but it's also, and this is old school. This is how I grew up and this is how I want to retire. It's like this. And it's beautiful out here, man. It's just fields and horses and look out my back window and there's an acre. We have an acre yard, acre and a half yard up looking out to the, to the horses in the backfield. It's 10 acres and it's, it's just beautiful. So yeah, it's wonderful, man. Yeah, I think just as you get older, your priorities change. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm younger than you, of course, but yeah, your priorities definitely change. I mean, and for the audience, you know, since they don't really know, and we've kind of hinted at all of it, you're gonna you're moving out there. I'm gonna be moving to Florida. Yeah, it, it might not be, yeah, it might not be long term because it's just a nine month lease. Um, but I'm gonna see how it goes. And once I do move there, I'm I'm gonna replace my computer because I've had a million issues. I'm gonna up my equipment. And then I'm going to get a, uh, you know, better cameras and then we could start to do the video stuff. So be on the lookout for that um, later on in the year. Um, You know what? Before we get to the interview, I did want to get to an email that we got from a recent guest, which was uh, John Jackson, who we just had on a couple episodes ago. But I thought this was cool. Um, He wrote, Ian, it was great hearing about the guy you guys were talking about who got a new kidney, which was BK, uh, Air Force PJ. Uh, I'm actually a living kidney donor. I gave one to my dad in 2000. He died in 2008, but lived a great full life after the transplant. It's a huge undertaking, but I'd do it all over again if I could. Keep doing what you're doing. Much appreciated. I, and then he has the attached letter uh, reminding him of how much being a donor saves lives. So I thought that was cool. Uh, I'm a donor on my on my driver's license. And you know what's funny is... um. You know, I, we talk about this often in the show, but I'm not a religious guy, I guess you'd say. I'm a spiritual guy. Um, but I've had friends who are more um, religious, who are Jewish, and they're like, you're an organ donor. You're not allowed to be an organ donor. But it's I also have, like, tattoos. You're not supposed to do that either. If you're <laughs> um, and I think it goes back to apparently that, like, in Judaism, I guess it's the idea that, and I think this is right. I'm no biblical scholar. But I think it's the idea that like the body is kind of a gift from God and it's not yeah. yours to deface. It's not yours to take your organs out to give to other people. But, you know, I would like to think God would forgive you for helping save someone's life if uh, need be. I, I don't think you'd have a problem with that. I, 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 yeah, I, I, I believe I'm an organ, organ donor on my card. That was my, my mom, actually, you know, when I first got my license. She's like, yeah, we, we should do that. I mean, cause do you really need those things when you're not on this planet anymore? No, help somebody else out. And believe me, if you met my mom, yeah, she is extremely, she is extremely devoted Christian, very religious. She grew up Catholic. She's now Episcopalian, uh, which is Catholic. It really is. It's, it's Catholic light is what it is. It's Episcopalian. Sorry for all you Episcopalians out there if I pissed you off, but really it's, I've been to both services. The only thing we don't believe in the Pope and some of the other Catholicism things, but really is it's Catholic light is what I say. But my wife, my mom is huge, you know, she, very devout. And she's the one that says, Hey, cause I, when I first got my license, I, I, I turned it down and she looked at my license back a long time. She goes, why aren't you an organ donor? 
like, I don't know. And I didn't know that. She goes, no, you don't need your stuff when you die. You're fine. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think that's like an exclusively Jewish thing. I mean, it may be Muslim. It may be, you know, but they've waived any of those rules with um, not being buried in a Jewish uh, cemetery for tattoos because yeah. of the Holocaust. I mean, those people oh, had yeah. tattoos on them. So at that point, you can't say that you can't be buried uh, yeah. in a Jewish cemetery after that. But yeah, I'm, I'm from a unique perspective, too, because of my family's background that I've been to all of it. I mean, because my dad was uh, raised Catholic, so I've been to Catholic services. I've been to um, evangelical churches. I've been to Reformed Jewish uh, services. I've been to conservative Jewish services, the Chabad, which is like the more super orthodox where the women are separated from the men. Um, yeah, I've I've seen a lot of it. It's all kind of interesting to see. Um you know, I do believe in, you know, you know you've said it, the whole idea that there's yeah. one God. I do believe in all that, that we all worship. But seeing the way different people worship uh, has given me an interesting perspective, I think, as opposed to someone who is born into one religion and that's yeah. all that they see their whole life. And not that there's anything wrong, no, with, that. wrong just, with that. It's it's cool to be able to see how other people worship. And uh, at least for me and the way I think of things, I kind of take things from all of it. I, I take things from Buddhism and I'll take things from Judaism and, and incorporate it all into my own faith. I think faith is just what, what you believe it is. And, and I, I'm a big proponent that you don't have to, you, there's not go to, if you like congregations, you like going to with the group on Sunday or, or Wednesday, if you're the, the LDS faith that I grew up, you know, I grew up in Utah, my dad coached Brigham Young. So I went to Dixie College there in St. George, so I was surrounded. My first wife was Mormon, so I, I was surrounded by that by the more LDS faiths. So, and you know, they have a different way of, uh, as far as Christianity goes, of 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 worshiping, which is their again. That, that must have been interesting because <clears throat> Mormon really is very different than any other form of Christianity. No, they, they are as far as the kingdoms, the celestial, terrestrial. I mean, there's three different kingdoms, and if you're not Mormon, you can't go. That's and I, I I'm I'm only. Jumping in here because there's another thing I remember. I was at the train station once, and someone uh, came up to me and was asking me if I was a Christian and all this stuff. And and then he said, you know, do you believe in the heavenly Father? He goes, but there's also the heavenly Mother. And I didn't really know what he was getting into. And it wasn't until I'm always interested in all this stuff. So then when I read, I was like, oh, he's Mormon because apparently that's what yeah. the Mormons believe. I, and regardless, you know, my first wife's family, I'm still friend, I'm still their son. I, even though I'm a son, they're wonderful. They never treated me any different. That's what there's a big, there is a big preconception that oh, Mormons, they, they think their religion is great. They're going to treat you. I was actually accepted with open arms in their family. So I, I, I seen, and, and we were at Brigham Young University. My dad coached, you know, we're not Mormon. We were never, Hey, all of the Mormon coaches can sit over here. Everybody, <laughs> it was never like that. We're all, accepted and and you know my dad coached when jim mcmahon was there and that dude is definitely not mormon <laughs> jim McMahon is not, um but it, i i did i i i grew up in again in all religions but i don't think you have to congregate be part of a religion also to believe in god which i i i'm a baptized episcopalian but i i rarely go to church i don't feel like i pray every night i i pray probably more than most people that go to church on sundays do i, I talk sure. to god personally i i do and and that relationship's good for me. I, I don't feel like I need to go to a, to a worship service with a bunch of people to to know there's God because I know there's God. And be, having gone through episodes, I know there is one. But again, I'm never going. I'm not going to say, "No, nah, that congregation's terrible." No, if that's what you need and that's what you want to feel like you're like you're with God or you're understanding God, or then do it. I, you know, I think it's whatever anybody feels like they need to 
do to feel God or to get in a relationship with God. That's what you do. And, and, um, uh, like truth, even our guest truth seeker has a different way of, of how he worships God, which, but he still does. And again, as long as you do in your own way and you figure that out for yourself, then you're good. As far as my book uh, is concerned. And, and, um, yeah, I, I, I and I, I honestly believe that, I believe that. And, and, uh, I honestly believe that even if you don't worship God or you're not Christian, I'm not Christianity. We should never condemn others. Good Christians don't condemn others for not being Christians. It's not our it's not our duty. We are not that high up that we are allowed to judge any or we should be judging anybody. But I will tell people you should believe in something. There is something bigger out there than just yeah. this. And, and whether it's Christianity or whether it's Buddhism or whether it's Islam or whatever it is, there still is. Some, or whether it's, you know, you believe in the tree gods. I, I, that's fine. It's, it's almost hard yourself. to believe that there's not something bigger. You know, I think you, if you question all this stuff around us and, and you know, the, the creation of the earth and all, I mean, yeah. how is there, how is there not something bigger but, out there? I don't that's, know. That's how you do it. Though. I, I questioned growing up when bad things yeah. happen or, or, yeah, I did, but that's how you learn. You question and then you learn and you talk to somebody and then you question and then you see something happening. That's, you may deem it's a miracle or you feel like, okay, no, there really is something good out here. Or you see something bad. Like, well, if there's bad, there's got to be the opposite of bad. out. There's got to be good. And you just learn as you grow up. And that's why you, you make your own conception. You conceptualize your own, your own way to worship and, and, and have faith in whatever you want to have faith in. For sure. Um, I mean, you see it all the time. That's why there's people who grow up, I think in, ultra religious households. And then, you know, at yeah, then, some point later on in life, they go the other way. Then there's people yeah. who grew up completely void of any religion and they grew up to be very strict yeah. Christians yeah. sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I do think life experience plays into all of that. Um, I, I, we definitely want to get to Christopher Strum. So uh, before we do, uh, there are some great people that keep us going and keep us doing what we do. Bub's Naturals, of course, you've heard us talk about. Bub's Naturals is a completely collagen protein with just one ingredient, and that's grass-fed cowhide. Um, and the thing about getting protein in your diet, it's hard to really get the proper amount of protein in your diet but by just eating food if you're someone who does my fitness pal like I do. And uh, you know, if you're an athlete, they recommend you do somewhere between like 0.8 grams to one gram per uh, you know, your your body weight in pounds. So say if you're like 175 pounds, you want to be eating close to 175 grams in protein, which is hard to do without supplementation. And that's actually why I take bubs. I do my fitness pal. And at the end of the day, I'm able to see, okay, I got enough protein in my system. Um, and it's also good for your joints and, and many other things. So check out bubs naturals, check out their MCT oil powder. And the great thing about bubs as well is that um, money for all purchases goes towards the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. So it's more than just great products. There's a great mission attached to those. Products. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tremendous. And, and we're repping bubs and giving back to the GDMF is, I mean, that should be enough. <laughs> really, if you want to try the product, just to give it a try. But once you get on it, guys, you're not going to get off it. It's, it's the best protein, in my opinion. And this is a, I suffer from inflammatory bowel disease from ulcerative colitis. Um, so it's hard to take any protein. This is the best protein by far, just not for somebody that is ails with IBD, but just any protein out there because of, of the natural, uh, how natural is the, the taste. 
if and especially even the no taste and then when you get in the the gummies with the vinegar the uh, apple vinegar apple cider vinegar gummies but i have seen and it takes time but i have seen a definite i mean even when i'm looking at my picture here <laughs> in our interview i can see that it is helping with getting myself back to that very strong and shaped person that i was you know that i'd lost before you know three four years ago and, and getting that back but the energy levels and my joints oh my gosh like i said i can run again i can run every day again and my joints aren't screaming and in pain so it is there are some benefits i can feel it and it's repairing joints in my body over but again it's taking time but yeah take time to take it and but do it try it get on it guys and, and you will see a positive difference just not even in your body but in your outlook on life because of the changes you're seeing in your body and your energy levels and so forth. Yep, so, absolutely. Yep. So go to bubsnaturals.com, use the promo code BATTLELINE, and you're going to get 20% off. Once again, it's bubsnaturals.com, promo code BATTLELINE, and they have so many great products now. I mean, not just the protein, the MCT oil powder, the Fountain of Youth formula, and the apple cider vinegar gummies. Go there now, guys, bubsnaturals.com. You know, it's on the shelves at a lot of places like vitamin yeah. shop by, by me is now carrying them. So you can get it pretty much anywhere. But because we're tight with them, you're going to get a discount through us. So when you go to their website and you use yeah. promo code BATTLELINE, you're going to get an awesome discount and you're helping out the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation as always. And uh, every show is sponsored by our great friends at Fort Scott Munitions. Fort Scott is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition that's designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring they receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. And I know you being in the area now, you've been yeah. doing more and more very closely with our friends at Fort Scott. Well, and, and, and just being here in Fort Scott, uh, Kansas, and seeing they're, you know, knowing how well they do, but also seeing the operation firsthand uh, over the years. And now, uh, yeah, they're just a tremendous company. They take care of their product. They believe in their product. They put their heart and souls in their product. And it, it shows when you're out there as a hunter or you're out there even just planking targets or, you know, home defense. It's the best ammo by far on the market. And and if you don't believe me, give it a try and you'll see you'll see just the velocity of it, the accuracy of it, the, you know, and and the reliability of it. And then also on top of that, you're just getting great customer service. You're getting great people behind the product, which to me is extremely, extremely important. And, you know, they're in a little itty bitty town in Kansas, which is awesome. And believe me, this town is straight up Americana. Out here, it's a tremendous town to be in. So uh, try for Scott, try their, also their merchandise. You and I favorite yes. shirts are the Squatch, the, the, the Sasquatch. Yeah, the Tactic Squatch, that's the best. <laughs> Those are, um, and there's a story behind that. The reason there is a tactical Tactic Squatch shirt is because the, the owner of Fort Scott Munitions, Ryan Kraft, he actually does believe in the Sasquatch. So we have to have a Tactic Squatch shirt and it is, it's the coolest thing out there. So there's humor and again, they're just good people as you can tell yeah, with they the are. stuff they do. 
So tremendous yeah. company. At some point, I'll have to come out there. You know, yeah. I, I we haven't seen each other in person. I mean, it's pretty freaking crazy in like a year and a half. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's been a at while. some point, I would have been at your Florida event coming up, but it's just the fact that I'm moving to Florida the following month. So it's like I'm going to be there while I'm packing, and then I'm going to come back. You know, yeah, so it's, it's just bad timing. But I know you'll be back in Florida when I'm there, so we'll see each yeah. other soon. But yeah. back to uh, Fort Scott Munitions, it's available in all 50 states. Go to the dealer locator on their website. It's fortscottmunitions.com. Link is in the description. Um, you're going to find a store right by you, and then also you can get their merchandise. As we said, the Tactic Squad shirt, any of their other kick-ass shirts. Uh, use the promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off your order. Only available to listeners of the BATTLELINE podcast. That's FortScottMunitions.com. Promo code BATTLELINE. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, BATTLELINE Tactical, and the BATTLELINE podcast. And one more thing on that, guys. We in, I forgot to say, they Fort Scott Munitions, their t-shirt company, uh, they make our BATTLELINE t-shirts. So that's who. Oh, nice. Okay. That's who makes is that, the is that new? Were they always doing them? No, it, it, we've had several different vendors over the years, and they've done the best job at making being the easiest to work with. Their their t shirt company. There actually it goes under another name. Laurie and Company is actually, but that's Fort Scott Munitions, and that's who makes the t shirts. And they make the battle line t shirts, and they have actually turned out the best. The Forge Ahead t shirts that are new coming out. Now we may take it in house. Uh, where we make it here, just Jeremy Mitchell, who does the merchandise, who helps with a lot of our stuff with KPI and Battleline. Oh yeah, helps um, us they, book guests too. Uh, books guests. He's he he will probably take it on, and we will make them in house. But for right now, you know, our our next best option is Fort Scott Munitions. So just wanted to put that out there on the Battleline shirts for sure. So check them out, guys. FortScottMunitions.com. Promo code Battleline. So joining us on the podcast for the first time is a guy who actually reached out to us and and I feel like wrote a book that's unlike anything that's ever been out there before, which is Brooklyn to Baghdad, an NYPD intelligence cop, fights terror in Iraq, which I have right here, signed to me by you, which I I really appreciate, (laughs) and to give some background on Christopher, former Marine and retired NYPD sergeant for the intelligence division, recruited in 2007 to join the Joint Improvised Explosive Device Defeat Organization. And uh, yeah, I mean, your background is incredible, I think, between all that that I just stated, as well as being there in the middle of the action on 9-11, which you document in the book. So it's great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Oh, oh yeah, I do. I, if, if you can, and okay, this is this is your platform, brother. This is for you to to, to promote and, and, and please do so. I mean, that's why we have you on here, but, you know, give a background if you can of the book, uh, what you wrote in it, you know, you'll give it away because we do want people to buy your book. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's how you make money. And this audience will buy the book. <laughs> right, um, you know, and, and also, you know, and this audience loves sign, I'll be on love sign books too. Just, I'm just throwing that little caveat out there. They loved sign books. So, cool. um, but um, you know what that was, but also just, your 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 background. I mean, from grow from starting in the Marine Corps to your basic training days. Anything that sticks out in your mind, and and what we love about you know Battleline Podcast when we have our guests on is that we get into things that maybe they haven't ever talked about before, or that you know it, you you may not feel like you ever would talk about, and then you get it on the show, and 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 people that well they love it, but they also learn from it. And that's the beauty thing. They learn overcoming adversities, uh, how to 
how to deal with obstacles and, and leadership and so forth. So, bro, this is your this is your platform. You know, run with it. And, and you jump all over the place because I do. Ian doesn't. He's actually pretty good at the radio <laughs> stuff. He's been doing it forever. There's always I jump all over. There's always got yeah, that guy that keeps everybody on track, which is important. Keeps everybody. Well. Yeah, yeah. Keeps us in our right and left limits. But, uh, sure. bro, please, please. Please go on ahead and, and just tell us about yourself and the book and, and your story. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I, I did my four years in the Marine Corps. And then um, after getting out, I, I joined the NYPD and had a phenomenal career with the NYPD. I mean, I was surrounded by some really amazing people. And I got to live out my fantasies, things that people see on TV about, you know, chasing the bad guy with a gun or the crazy car chase that ends with a crash and people bailing out. All those things I, I got to actually do. And, and um, again, surrounded by some amazing, gifted people, great investigators and detectives that um, really made me look like a superstar. And um, after, after doing that, well, let me back up just a moment. 9-11 had happened, and um, I was a street guy for already for like eight years, nine years. And they were looking for people to go into the intelligence division. And, you know, I was working with some really great people, as I say, and I was like, I got steady days off. I'm making a lot of overtime. I'm working with people that, you know, there's a serious trust issue that has to be formed, a bond uh, personally with these people. And um, I didn't want to let it go. And um, long story short, my son had gotten very sick. And uh, as a result of that, I was home eight weeks, uh, courtesy of the NYPD while he was rehabbing. He was only three months old at the time. And the captain that had gotten me off when it came time to take this vacancy in the intelligence division, he asked me, and obviously I couldn't say no to him because he was the same person that facilitated me being home with my son. And uh, sure. it turned out to be the best decision I almost didn't make because I really didn't want to go. And had he not asked me, I probably wasn't going to go. Uh, it's really a direct direct result of mutual respect for one another and things like that. And then um, I get in there and I'm like, gee, you know, I'm a street guy. What am I what am I going to do here in the intelligence division? And now, you know, the whole police department in terms of the intelligence division, as far as it relates to me, had shifted from criminal to counterterrorism. And I didn't really know anything okay. about counterterrorism. I didn't know anything about the Patriot Act. I only knew what I was reading. And I knew that I was pretty pissed off like most New Yorkers about what had happened with the Trade Center and things like that. So, again, I get in there and um, there's a learning curve, but I'm surrounded by some really great people that, uh, you know, quite honestly, I'm supposed to be supervising them and, and, and they're supposed to be learning from me, but it was quite the opposite. I was learning from them. And um, wow. we ended up really, you know, taking it to them and we got involved in some great investigations. Um, there was some conflict with the JTTF, which, you know, people hear about the JTTF and they think, oh, that's, the, you know, here they come to save the day. Um, but really, uh, quite honestly, there's a lot of friction and there's a lot of animosity with some of the federal law enforcement partners. And I worked directly with them and under them. So as an example, uh, a counterterrorism investigation would come in. And it could be something very simple. Um, some lady who's 80 years old, living in an apartment, notices the comings and goings of people at, at odd hours. The license plates are all from New Jersey. She's in New York. And uh, oh, and by the Damn way, New Jersey is, is yeah, yeah, yeah. a New Jersey thing. It's in New Jersey. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, uh, and oh, by the way, they happen to be of Middle Eastern or Arab descent, you know. So, again, sure. it's it's citizen generated. So we have an obligation as a police department. We don't pick and choose investigations. And sure. quite honestly, the intelligence division in New York City is is barring on the most sophisticated and best intelligence, human intelligence collection service in the world, period. 
And I'll have that argument with anybody that wants to have it because I know what goes on there on a daily basis. I know for a fact. Sure. So from those little innocuous things of, you know, strange comings and goings, maybe it turns out to be just, you know, healthy paranoia. Maybe it's just a, lo- a lady's lonely. But every now and then it turns out to be exactly as she describes. And there's something to it. And you start doing an investigation. And before you know it, you're calling in all different kinds of resources. You're trying to do uh, introduction of, a, of your human sources. And, uh, and the case is up and running. Unfortunately, uh, you would think that you would get to take it down. Since you started the case, you you know, like most people, you like to finish the case. But that's not really what happens in the yeah. JTTF. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this whole business of the kumbaya, and we all love each other. It's a very competitive, yeah. type three personality uh, business. Believe me when I tell you that. No, I, I, I believe that. I, I saw it within the just overseas when you would see FBI, HRT guys come down or You'd see the, uh, you know, anything but from the NSA or even agency staffers as a contractor, which I was, it was easy to see on the outside. It was because we right. make fun of everybody. That was beautiful. Yeah. We could, we could make fun of every, <laughs> y'all, y'all, y'all are shit. We're going to make funny because we're kind, but, and it'd be on the outside looking in, but you're all right. That, you, you know, you, we, we would see it as contractors being the redheaded stepchildren on the outside where a group would do all the work, but then FBI or somebody from DOJ from the feds would come in and, and do the, the actual cool guy stuff to make it look good. And, right. and, and you do, I, and, and you do, it, it is, it, it's an alpha and alpha. I hate saying that because alpha male is the contradiction in terms of my opinion. I, I they think, I think a lot of people in the alpha male world are, are very insecure, which is why this happens instead of saying, Hey, we're a team. Let's all split this up. It's, no, we're going to, we're, we're, and it's the, the head shit. And it, it doesn't, I know it's not always with the guys. I, I don't, I don't always see it all the time with the guys that are actually on the ground, except maybe for using the excuse, well, I'm just a guy on the ground. I don't make those decisions, but I did see it up at the, up at the top levels. And it is, it's to put the feather in the cap and it's, it's, it's to, to hey, look what we're doing. Well, did you do all the work? Well, we don't, we don't want to talk about that. We just want to see what the end state was and look what we accomplished. And, um, you know, I had buddies from the NYPD. Don Kelly was a tremendous one with the NYPD that came to be contractors with us. And they would always tell us the same thing. They'd say, hey, man, yeah, <laughs> we're doing a ton of, and this was an 0304 in Baghdad. Right. Where they would quit. They would quit. Yeah, they'd quit NYPD because they just got frustrated with the J- the, the, the task force stuff. And they would become contractors. But that was also when we were making a lot of money as contractors. Yeah. So it was like, True. and uh True. Yes. So, so I believe you, bro. but I believe on that. And, um, but the, the, the beauty is that you guys still did your work and, and when people think about profiling, you guys, I hate when politicians and, and, the, and the groups, Oh, you're a profile. No, you weren't. You're, you're, you're following your leads. And then 90 times out of 10, the leads were correct and you did what you needed to do. So I, yeah, tremendous, tremendous job. And, and I'm glad you talked about that. And again, keep going into that. And, and maybe some instances that you had, if you can get specific and we'll, we'll beep out names. If we need to, you just tell us. Well, the, we book, the thing about the book is there's, there's a few names in the book. And I saw like how you said that if the name is in italics, I believe you were like, this is a fictional name. A pseudo. You yeah, know, you so pseudo. some of them are, you got permission in the book and some of them were fictional. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, listen, first of all, I, I didn't know anything about the literary realm in terms of getting a book published and, and it took me 10 years and, you know, I had a plan and God had a plan, but I guess God's plan won out in the end because his plan took yeah. 10 years. If I had my way, it would have been done in a year or two. 
Um, <laughs> but having said that, you know, you get involved with lawyers and editors and they're like, you can't say that shit. I'm like, what do you mean I can't say that? Yeah. Shit? That's exactly what happened there. And they're like, yeah, but it's a little bit touchy. It's a little bit sensitive. And, you know, I, I had a top secret security clearance at the time. And, you know, again, in the book, if you read it, it's very it's very generic. There's nothing being revealed in there that would cause any issue yeah. with that. But it's a question of saying, you know, this guy was a real son of a bitch. And he really yeah. hurt, <laughs> and he really he really hurt the team and he hurt the effectiveness of the team. And it's like, yeah, you really can't say that. That's not a good thing to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, because because we have liability issues and we have slander issues and lawyers and you know, look at how lawyers are. Let me get involved in everything and it slows everything down. like the like the jab, unfortunately. They they overanalyze and do risk assessment and threat assessment, and it's just like, Yeah, can can we just get on with the mission? I, I don't really you're giving me a headache, okay? I know what I need to do, just well, and, do it. You know, and by the time they they allowed you to do it, the the, the time had gone. The best time to do the hit, oh, yeah. or, or it's Lots just like it's just like fishing, and you're seeing all the fish in the pond, but you have to get the clearance to go to this pond to fish because it's not owned by you. But by the time you did it, the fish are the fish have left that spot and they've gone somewhere else. And, Absolutely. But you know, I I saw that a lot. Again, as a contractor, we I was it was fun being on the outside looking in because really. We had no responsibility. It just was do whatever we need to do. Right. No oversight. But but watching that from afar, we saw that a lot. And we saw the DOD getting in fights with DOJ. And then the agency would get in fights with DOD. And then we saw, like, wait, there's New York police officer. What, what the hell? They're coming in. And then, but, well, it's a local. Now they're getting fights with the feds. And it it's amazing, though, that I'll be honest, as an outsider, look, it's amazing things got done. And they, things still got done very oh, yeah. well. Absolutely. But it's still a man like, how did all this get done with all this bureaucratic? And then the politicians would get involved and that would just turn it all to shit. But it's just amazing how things got done. And, and but it did. And, and you got, I said, New York, the New York Police Department at that time, from what I'm familiar with, I don't know now because I've been out for a while. But the 03s, 04s, 05s was was doing a tremendous, like I said, doing a tremendous intel human collection job. Right. And she, I think I think the agency should come and train with you guys. To be oh, no. <laughs> you know, we we have an expression: the bad guy's not in the computer, which is code for yeah. in the NYPD. You got to do a door knock, and you got to actually yep. talk. I know this sounds like a novel idea to some, but not to you folks. You got to talk to a real human being, you and not over a telephone in person. <laughs> Get out there yes. and talk to somebody. You know what I mean? And I. I I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to get on the on the bandwagon of just bashing people, but I will say that the NYPD, and I, I obviously I'm I'm biased because I'm from that from that um, that group of, of people. But I know, as a section leader in the in the intelligence division, running the counterterrorism leads desk, I you know I'm responsible in, in answering to people who have questions, serious questions. And if you do that, uh, 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 I'll get back to you. You know, they just fire you. They just replace you. Yeah. So just to give you some context, again, not to blow my own horn, but there's 5,000 sergeants in the NYPD. I know that's hard to imagine because most of the police departments don't even have that many people, let alone sergeants. Only four people did my job, four, counting me. So I'd like to think it was because I, I was confident because it clearly wasn't for my good looks. I mean, I, I wish I could say <laughs> I that. Care, you did, no, you, you I got, got a face, face for radio. For, you know, it's good. You got face for <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I, uh, it's funny because Chris said earlier in the interview, he was like, Ian is the one who keeps things together. So I want to actually get back to Chris's question because I, before we lose the moment of that, um, <laughs> yeah, any, I mean, cause the book does have some great stories and the way that the book is written, as you kind of said, even though you have two co-authors, I could very much tell it's your voice 
Um, and people are going to read a ton of different stories in here. But I guess to give a preview, as Chris said, I think people would love to hear, you know, one or two of those stories from what happened on the ground in New York City. What sticks out? And just like me, when people ask me on, on hey, what does stick out? Maybe something else will come in mind that, that wasn't even the book. And for you can write for round two. But definitely, I, you know, I, the listeners would love to hear at least least something that 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 just really resonates in your head and it doesn't ha- always have to be killing and jumping over it can be just something even something touching where where um i i didn't want to touch mine was where i met a where, afghani kid and, and i you know i'm not gonna get into it because this is your interview not mine but um but something something just where where uh, the listeners can can really really you know feel what was going on and what was going on through your head. And, and I, I'd love to hear it too. I, I just, just to get it out there and, and have our, have our listeners um, relate to, to that time frame as well in 2003, 04, 05, and 2001, of course, uh, and 9-11. Right. Well, I mean, in, ter- in terms of 9-11, I was working in, um, and it's in the book, so I, I don't know if this is kind of a, a new, a new story, but um, I had gone to work and I had changed my tour because my daughter's birthday was that day. She turned four on 9-11. On and, 9-11? Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and listen, I could go on and on about my kids like every other father, especially their daughters. You know, it's it's easy to do. <laughs> and, um, you know, she's bouncing around and like, hey, you know, we're going to come home. When I come home, I had changed my tour because I was working in narcotics. And I said, you know, we'll have cake, you know, grandma and grandpa will come over and things like that. And uh, I go into work and one of my detectives uh, was who, who was with me at the time. We said, let's go get breakfast. And because I did narcotics enforcement, I really was like my own boss. And everything is pretty much self-initiated. It's not like they, you get a report and says there's there's a uh, drug sales here and they need you to respond to it. It's it's more or less a planning type of thing. Operations, things, buys, things like that. Sure. So I didn't even have a team that I could field that day. And I went and got breakfast. And uh, I turned my radio down. And the next thing you know, I'm coming out on Atlantic Avenue, heading westbound. And for people who aren't familiar with Brooklyn, New York, um, Atlantic Avenue dead ends in at the East River. And right to your right, as you're looking at Lower Manhattan and the Staten Island Ferry Terminal, is the Brooklyn Bridge. So it's beautiful. This whole area is all waterfront, very picturesque. And as I'm driving down, you know, the radio is so chaotic, I can't really understand what's going on. And I could see all the black smoke billowing and drifting because of the winds coming right over toward the Brooklyn side of the East River from Manhattan. And with that, there's like paper that's because of the wow. sun and where the sun is, it's reflecting almost like it's like glitter coming off like a, like, like a, a movie set dress or something like that, or, or like what was on uh, the X factor when they dropped the, the golden, um, uh, not the tickets, but whatever, you know, that like shimmering uh, gold. Yeah, yep. And, uh, so I'm like, oh, my God, you know, what's going on? And now I'm, I'm calling my wife because at the time she works in a hospital. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. She goes, yeah, we have the TV on. She worked in an x-ray department. And um, at that time, as I'm speaking to her, literally, the, the second plane comes, dri- drives right, flies right past me and hits the tower. And now there's this huge, like, shockwave of explosion, as you might imagine. And with that, I'm like, I got to go. And I got home three days later after that. And I did all kinds of things that. You know, it's depicted on TV. But one of the more crazy things about it was because of where I was working at the time, initially, the first day, I was at the entrance to the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, which is an underground tunnel that connects Brooklyn to lower Manhattan. And basically, when you come up, you're right there at the Trade Center where the Trade Center used to be. 
And because there's this explosion, now all the cars are pretty much trapped inside the tunnel. They can't go in and they can't come out. Man. And now what's yeah. happening is at each end of the tunnel are these huge ventilation fans to suck out the carbon monoxide of the cars that go through there. Yep. Well, when the first building fell, it sucked all this dust and dirt right into the tunnel. And now these people are coming yeah. out and they look like what you had seen on television. I mean, it was, it, it was so, it was so crazy. And um, so that went on for, that went on for a while. But now the question is how are we going to triage these people? Some people are, you know, walking further into the city, some are walking out. I mean, it was very, very chaotic for that, for that sure. moment. But I'll never forget how macabre that was looking at all these people and, and just like they're, they look like the Michelin man completely encrusted with dust and dirt. And it was a beautiful day that day. And it's like, I mean, we, we were getting water bottles from different um, food stores and pouring water on their eyes and triaging them and getting their names. But these people sure. were obviously in shock, as you might imagine. And I'll, you know, so it's one of those things where Man. you see it and you're trying to process it, but it's like, it's like mission first. What's the mission? You know what I mean? And even though nobody well, yeah, had yeah. a real defined plan at that point in time, we were going through the motions, doing the best we could with the resources that we had, you know, so. Well, I, well that, and that's how you, well, I, and that's a good point. That's how you keep your head about you is, is you just, it's not robotic. And I think people misconstrue, it's a misconception that you go into a robot mode. It's not, you just, what's my job. And by focusing on your job, then you do, then you're able to stay out of the panic mode. You're able to keep your adrenaline down. You're able to maintain your composure, even though you're like that duck in water, that old analogy where, you know, if you could see my stomach inside me, it's going crazy, but all right, what, what's my job? What do I need to do? And you focus right. on your job and, and you've been trained Again, you always fall back on your highest level of training. I tell people that all the time. You will not reach a level up here if you're always training down here. But obviously, and I, and again, probably in those old days, I mean, I want to hear some of your horror stories at the at how the academies were when you're going through. Oh, actually, what I talked about that. But uh, you know, that's why I was to hey. Sometimes hazing is okay. Sometimes being pushed by your instructors to the point of throwing your guts out is okay. Because when that time comes that you need to be at that combat level, whatever it is, high stress, duress levels, you've at least done something in training where you've been pushed to the brink. And either you quit or you didn't. If you didn't quit, well, you're going to overcome and you're going to be able to do what you did. Obviously, just like you said, I just went into work mode. But that's what it is. You just go into work mode. Um, But speaking of that, yeah, I I know it's not in the book, but I do. I want to... and I want to get your feelings on how academies are nowadays and compared to when you went through. And, and hey, the army guys were the same way. Every guy that's went through before me, it was tougher when he went through. <laughs> it is, but that's but that's the truth. Right. But it is. I mean, we give each other shit, but that's the truth. You know, I, I would. I, I'd like to. You know, if you have, because I, I always dig those stories back back in the old back in the old days. And you're not. I know you're only 35, but back in the old <laughs> days. <laughs> The old, of when you went through the academy and even even the core and maybe comparing the two because we have listeners kids that are thinking one or the other and I always say hey maybe you want to do both and see which one you like to but I'd like to hear you know if you have any good sto- a good story from your 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 NYPD um, academy days and and your thoughts of how the academies are today and and then if you well, want to throw a know, Marine Corps story I, I in there you go ahead but but my my, yeah, but please, yeah, I'd, I'd like to know. I, I've been itching to ask you that since we are going to have you on the show. Well, I, I went into the academy in 1987, so you know there there was a lot of 
there was I wouldn't call it direct hazing, but they you know the the use of colorful language and you know <laughs> the, the stressing of people out and formation and a lot of sure. yelling and screaming. I know we we're joking about it. It's not like that anymore today. I can promise you because, you know, for example, they had a, four, a, a five foot high wall, which most people can look over the wall. I mean, every now and then you find someone that can't, but yeah. five foot is pretty, it's pretty low. And believe it or not, we had people in the Academy that couldn't get over that wall, guys and girls. Okay. Wow. And part of that, wow. part of the, you know, the, the final PFT or physical fitness test was yeah, yeah, to get yeah, over yeah. the wall. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, you could almost like just jump over the wall, like, you know, handspring over the wall. It's and, and was now, now was this in full gear too, or was this just, just a belt, just your belt, your bat belt? No, no body armor or nothing None. like that. Just your belt. Yeah. So or it's just, or it's just, or it's just, okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And, um, yeah. and then, you know, one of the other things that was interesting was, you know, running. So I had already done four years in the Marine Corps. So sure. I, I, you got to run. Even to this day, like running, I love running. I like to, I'm at the gym four or five days a week with my son. So I never had an issue with that. But there were people, they were doing a, we're do, we're doing a mile run in a circle around a basketball court with about 500 people, if you can imagine that. Okay. So you can't go that fast. Okay. It's a basketball court. Okay. So I don't even know how many laps equal a mile, but it was, it seemed like it went on forever, like a half an hour. Right? <laughs> and we're having people drop out of the run. Now the pace is probably, it's got to be less than 10 minutes a mile. I mean, uh, more than 10 yeah. minutes a mile, yeah. because you, like I said, because of the, 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 the vast amount of people and all this, and you're having people drop out of the run and you're like, well, you know, I kind of look at it like you don't have any business being a police officer because I think you're going to have to run every now and then after some 14-year-old kid. I'm guessing. I don't know, you know. <laughs> and, um, you, you know, but, pe- you know, throwing up and, you know, they're out in the middle. And, you know, supposedly at the time when I had gone through, if you dropped, I think, don't quote me on this, I believe, it was three times if you did a self-excusal from some kind of physical activity, they finally said, hey, we got to let you go. So you could have got all hundreds academically on on on, on and really – been an A student in terms of that, but if you couldn't pass the physical, they would actually disqualify you. Now it's like, I take a stress day. You don't feel you don't feel like competing today. You don't feel like doing some push-ups. You know, can't yell at anybody. You know, you, you know, somebody stole your Cheerios. I mean, whatever, whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's that's what it's like now. And it, yeah. and it's really, listen, you got cops standing on the street corner. Talking on their cell phone. They have no situational yeah. awareness. They're like knee deep in their social media in uniform. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to when I was a cop, first of all, we didn't have cell phones till, till later on before I retired. Certainly we had cell phones and stuff like that. But as a sergeant or as a cop, and a, and a sergeant came around and caught me on patrol on the foot post doing that, he would have my ass. It would be like, that you're getting a—they call it a rip. So you'd be getting in trouble. You get an official complaint. Probably go in your folder for a, an evaluation if you posted for another position. You weren't going to get it. And uh, yeah. today it's like, well, we don't want to yell at people. You know, it's a more kinder, gentler. You know, NYPD. You know, everybody has to you know have their own time and, and space and things like that. So it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. Well- Chris, do you remember that viral story from a few years ago? Because I rem- I have friends in the NYPD, like my friend Ricky Poe, who I'd love to get on here, you know, who's a former Army guy. And these guys are very fit. They take the job very seriously. Um, or my friend Armando. And, you know, I, very, I know various guys in the NYPD go to my gym and stuff. But that and they all laughed at this. I mean, that viral story from a few years ago, of that guy 
who was trying to sue the NYPD or was trying to sue the city, I think, for saying that the job made him obese. <laughs> Do you remember that? I, I, I don't remember. You that. know what it is? It's I, I, I don't remember that specific story. But uh, one, I'm not surprised. I'm going to pull it up. I got to find it. And, and two, it's just it's like it's like a race to the bottom in terms of, you know, the hurt feelings clause. Who? Well, how can I be offended and be a victim and at the same time sue and make some money? You know, makes I, mean? the money looks, I, I pulled it up. This is from 2018. But, I'm looking but, at the New York Post here. Sure. My job as an NYPD officer made me obese. <laughs> um, a morbidly obese city cop got a hefty pension when he retired on disability at age 43, but he's still hungry for more dough. So he's suing the NYPD, claiming the job left him corpulent. Um, and he writes the job or he was quoted. The job is like a tyrant said ex-NYPD officer Jose Vega, who is five foot ten and tips the scales at 360 pounds. Oh. I went from oh 250 God. to 395 pounds in one year. I guarantee you, as small as you are, you eat more than me, he told the Post reporter Tuesday. Oh. Um, it goes on and on, but like, you know, my friends who were in the NYPD were just, you know, embarrassed by this. They were like, well, I, oh, I feel it's part of my job to make time to go to the gym, to go to the range, to do all the stuff that makes a good cop. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it as I you know, your opinion on I I know you have a good opinion. It's probably the share the same as me and Ian. Uh Ian and myself let me do proper grammar here. Ian and myself. <laughs> but you know, you can't tell guys to go work out either though, because now you're now you're infringing on their their fundamental right to do what they want. So what what's the what's the solution if you're not willing to be a self improvement self starter, but you can't tell the sergeant, "Hey, dude, you're getting fat. You need to go to the gym because then you'll get sued for that." Um, you know what? What do you do at that point? And what did you find yourself having to do, or could you do anything at all? Or you just either had guys that were able to self improve and took care of themselves. And guys is a gender neutral term on Battle Line podcasters, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys is all right. We're not. Yeah, we're not New trying York, to offend. New York, if you say guys, that, that's synonymous. It, with I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But. But yeah, I remember Ian talking about that story and not having you on. I mean, obviously, I, I, I kind of already have your know your opinion on it, but you get into it anyway. But what do you do and, and what could what can a police department do to ensure that their people are, are staying fit to the fight? Battle ready is what we call it in the Army. Are, are your combat readiness? Granted, I don't want you getting into combat, but it is. It's a readiness that you need to have if stuff happens. Physical fitness is a huge part of that, of being ready to get in the fight or to help people like you did on 9-11. Being in shape helps you maintain that stress levels. It does. There's a correspondence to it. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to get your opinion on it. <laughs> well, first first and foremost, there's really little you can do. I mean, you can reflect it in their evaluation as a sergeant or a you could say, hey, you know, o Officer Chris or Officer Ian, you know, maintains a high level of physical fitness. It should be reflected upon his character. And he's in good keeping with the uh, high standards of the NYPD. Conversely, you could write the same thing about somebody in a negative way. And, you know, you, but in terms of trying to motivate people to work out or stay fit, there's 35,000 cops in New York City. That's not happening. And all, but keep in <laughs> mind, keep in mind, every precinct or probably almost every precinct has a gym uh, on, on premises. Yeah. So there's really not an excuse that you couldn't go down there on your lunch break or whatever and get, you know, get somewhat of a workout. I mean, obviously an hour is, you know, between getting changed into your clothes and changed back into your sure, uniform. Sure. You know, that takes time too, but certainly 35, 40 minutes worth of that could be involved in physical exercise. And a lot of guys do. I don't want to paint the picture that, you know, there's such a high percentage of people yeah. that are out of shape, but the ones that are hide behind the fact that 
they're, they know this, this line of demarcation is you can't make me. You can't make me change. And if I'm going to be a lazy person that just checks the box and shows up every day at 8 and leaves at 530, you know, there's really, really little you can do other than, like I said, about the evaluation. However, now, if the person yeah, keep going, keep going. if the person wanted to get into a detail, let's say, for example, like anti-crime or narcotics or, sure. or, or the intelligence division, there's no way that person's getting in. If there's if that's reflected in his evaluation. So the motivation for somebody to do better or better themselves or stay physically fit or stay stay engaged and situationally aware, go to trainings that become available if you can go to them, that works to their benefit. So, you know, they kind of get they kind of reap what they sow. So, again, if they if that's just the way they want to be for 20 years or 25 years or whatever the case is, you know, that's it's totally up to them. But again, I would say 90 percent of the guys are motivated, excited, come to work. Good people want to do the best job that they can, like like soldiers, like people in the military. Like you're going to have sure. those people. You can't change them, you know, whether it's upbringing yeah. or bad examples or broken homes or whatever it could be. But like that wasn't the guys. And the benefit for me was when I picked my team, I picked the good guy. I picked the guy that's willing to learn um, that is physically fit, because when you're working in narcotics or you're working in a robbery squad, which I did, you're talking about some violent people. There's a lot of a lot of hands-on aspects to the job where, you know, people just don't turn around from a verbal command and, and put their hands behind the back. It doesn't work that way. So there is the mm-hmm. foot chase. There is the violent struggle. There is the fear factor of the person. Is he armed? Is he going to shoot you? Are you going to have to shoot them? You know, there's a lot of different things that are involved. Sure. And that's all happening in microseconds. It's happening very, very quick in real time. You don't yeah. really think, yeah. as you say, you, you train for the worst scenario and you prepare yourself mentally so that in the event that you have to do that, you're you're able to take you know pro police action. You're, you're I, I wanted good. to follow up with uh, I just wanted to follow up with something else that was related to that, and and I agree with you. I mean, I do think, and and I speak to them. You know, being here in New York, most officers do take the job um, very seriously. Um, in terms of something though that's related to the fitness stuff, but is a little different. You know, it's just being real here. There have been a number of bad shoots by the NYPD over the years. There's been a few in recent years. And I was wondering from your perspective, because I've heard other people's opinions on this, but, you know, you'd be the guy to ask, do you think that that's a result of not having enough range time, not being trained on firearms enough? I mean, why does that happen? Or is it just, you know, is it just that these get reported on and they don't happen happen often? I'd, I'd like to hear your perspective. Well, I... I I, I'm just going to say that with 35,000 people, if you take a percentage, let's say there's 100 shootings uh, a year in the NYPD. And I don't know what the numbers are. I'm just using that as a number. Sure. What is that in terms of percentage of people, contacts, on and on and on? Good shootings. Let's say out of the 100, 90 were completely justified. The guy had a weapon. He displayed a weapon or threatened the use of a weapon, whatever it was. Or it was a third-party protection situation where – the use of deadly physical force was authorized because the harm that could be committed against a third in- yep. innocent person justified the use of it. So now you're left with 10. You're left with 10 questionable shootings. So clearly, I would agree with you. Probably some of it has to do with training. Some of it has to do with accidental discharge. In other words, somebody had their finger on the trigger, they got spooked, and they pulled the trigger accidentally. So now you have an accidental discharge with an injury. So there's a whole different facet. The training, it's good that you, it's interesting that you brought up the training because I just want to give you an example because this, I think your audience will appreciate and I know Chris is going to appreciate this. 
Imagine, <laughs> if you will, 35,000 cops every year go to the range once, mandatory, once, once yeah. to qualify, okay? I, I think it's 50 rounds, and I once yeah. at the five-yard line, the 10-yard line, the 15-yard line, the 40-yard line, whatever, whatever it is. It's something to that effect, and you need a passing score of 80 or better to, to, to pass. So when I first came on the job, they had revolvers. I know that sounds crazy because 90% of the police departments in the country already had semi-automatics. But the NYPD said, no, you could do just fine with a six-shot revolver, okay, <laughs> which has a trigger pull of about 12 and a half pounds. 12 pounds. It's heavy. Heavy. It's heavy. Yeah, I think and heavy. the gun is heavy. Yeah. And the recoil is, yeah. is, is more It's more like yeah. a hammer hitting you in the web of your hand as opposed to a semi-automatic where a little bit of the energy yeah. is absorbed in the slide. It's not as severe. Yeah. So yeah. finally, the department decides we are going to transition over from revolvers to nine millimeters. And that happened for me in 1994. So seven years on the job, I had a revolver. Uh, we switch over to the revolver. There's a bunch of accidental discharges because the trigger pull is less. Than, than what it, it's a little bit lighter. Was. Yeah. So what's the NYPD's response? We've got to increase the trigger pull. Now the Glock at the time had like a five pound trigger pull, which is yeah. awkward. If you know if you're comfortable shooting and you practice and everything like that, and it doesn't accidentally discharge it. No gun accidentally discharges. It only discharges it, you pull the trigger. Period. It, Dropping it, it on the yeah, ground. It's, it's, always, it, it's always negligent. Always negligent. Yeah, so yeah, there's yeah, no accidental discharge. You're fingering out. It's always negligent. There's something okay. you did wrong to make that gun go off. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So now they have the clock. They start having these accidental discharges. So the solution is we're going to increase the trigger pull. So they went from tw from five and a half pounds to, I think, almost uh, 10 pounds. And then finally, a third time, they went up back to 12 and a half pounds, similar to the trigger on a pull. Uh, the I, I'm not making this up. I, I, I promise you, on a Glock. Oh on my a Glock. Lord. Wow. Again, you're changing wow. the characteristics of the gun. That's not in mm. the intention of the manufacturer, which is always a no-no. Yeah. I think the manufacturer knows yeah. more about how to, this weapon should operate yeah. Yeah. optimally than, <laughs> than some armor at the in the NYPD. I'm just going to go out there and say that. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. So as a direct result of that, <laughs> now you go to the range. Well, we're having a problem now with female, and this is a fact. I'm not making this up. We're having a problem with females yeah. passing the qualification because the trigger pull now went from five up to 12. And, and there, there were articles about that. So you're not making it up. People were writing yeah, about yeah, that yeah. back in the, I remember reading some of that stuff. Yeah. So now it goes from, if you shot a 95 or better, you could wear like a breast bar that said, I'm a pistol expert. Look at me. So like, yeah. We're oh, just so, gonna, so they kind of went to the military way where you got expert. Oh, wow. Wow. We're, wow. Just, we're just going to do pass fail now. There's going to be no, you, you, you passed and, and the person standing to your left and right, they passed too. And nobody knows the score. It's there's no more scorekeeping. It's just a P or an F in your, in your, in your folder. I remember. So, I do. I remember. I remember that. I, I remember because the military, the army, army was thinking about doing that same thing was going from a pass fail. And, and a lot of, you know, a lot of the, of course the, 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 a lot of people jumped in like, no, 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 no. Their, their score set up because those scores are graded and they're looked at on your, on your 201 file. If you're going to go into special forces or Rangers, right, or, sure. you know, you, you, you need those scores and, and those, you know, whether you're an expert sharpshooter, whatever. I mean, it does look cool on your back, but I want on your, on your chest, but I want people to know too, once you get into the special operation ranks, you, you don't if if you're not an expert marksman, so you don't wear the badges anymore. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, there's no. 
but but it made sense. And and I remember that story for, and that was the new one YPD said just pass fail. Like, no, horseshit. No, this you this people needs to be judged. And also to see as a sergeant, who do I need to work with to improve on? Who needs the extra work, which you can't you're not able to see that anymore. If you see right. the pass fail and, and I, I, I think people realize as a, as a shooter, and I still shoot a lot. Obviously you do as well. And, and you know, your business there, you know, changing that heavy trigger weight to a lighter gun, you're going to tend to yank rounds all over the place because I mean, the revolver, like you said, it's a heavier, it's a heavier trigger, but it's also a heavier gun. A Glock yeah. is not heavy. A Glock's no. not heavy at all. No. And so taking the heavier trigger, now you're playing all over the place and you're, you're, you're either over gripping, you're under gripping, you're, you're jerking your trigger, you're pressing your thumb on your, it, it just, it sets up up for bad, bad things to happen. And also if you're not used to that and honestly five pound trigger in the grand scheme of today's world really still kind of heavy. If you get into it now with guys that do a lot of shooting race guns that are out there that have no trigger pull at all um, or, or just the lighter triggers, even the half moon triggers you get out there. But right. that's, that's, that's amazing. And you being there and in that time, I'd love to hear that. I, I love that you talked about it because I don't get to talk to people in that first hand experience at that time in the NYPD when all this was going on. And um, yeah, I, I, and did they eventually change that up and go back to just the standard? Here's the Glock or is it still a heavy, is it still a heavy trigger? It's still, heavy. It's, it, my understanding wow. is it's still, it's still heavy trigger. And you know, and, and let's, let's be, let's be honest. When you're in a when you're in a gunfight in New York City on the street of New York, so many factors come into into play. Yeah, there's it, so many people around you. Every I mean, just, wow. Can I, can I even shoot? Do I have a clean shot? Is there collateral? Yes. What if I miss? Yeah. What's the, you know, and all that What's is behind. Happening. Yeah. It's happening so quickly, and you know, believe me, the the whole incident from start to finish might take less than thirty seconds. The yeah. after yeah. effect and the review and the and 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 the and the, and the ass pain that you're going to have to go through is at minimum six months before they're going to say, okay, your Chris's shooting was fine. You know, restore him back to full duty, things like that. And how do I know? Cause I had a shooting. So I know, I know what I'm talking about. Sure. So it's, and Just, everybody well, there is an expert except you, you know, you're the guy who actually shot the person, all the other people <laughs> said, yes. the shooting review panel who have never even been, been in plain close operations <laughs> doing enforcement. They're the experts about what you should have done and how you should have responded to that particular situation. And, and it's like, and okay. And I guess you're right. I don't know anything. I'm sorry. It's, it's probably even getting worse now too. Cause the more, you, the more the intellectuals, the, the, the smart kids, I used to call them the smart kids after Goodwill hunting came out. It's always the smart kids that know everything <laughs> out there that have never been it, but have studied it and have no, it's like, you know, you may have studied it, but until you get out there and actually, find out what takes place in a real world setting and or actually gone through an incident. Um, you won't know. I don't care how much studying you've been through. Um, but that that's still amazing. And how much money they spent in putting in the new triggers when they just could have sent them to a couple extra classes. I, I They probably would have been a lot less money than just they think, well, we're saving money by not paying for extra training. You just spent if not even a million dollars, at least close to uh-huh. dropping new triggers into those Glocks. Oh yeah, that's, that's, that's and those things cost money, and the armor. It, it's not like they were free. Like here, here's the twelve pound trigger. Here, here, give it to your. You just drop it in there, and it's, no, you have to take apart the gun. You have to put it. In. It's it's amazing the mindsets of 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 people up on the top in the head shed of, and then also the bean counters think, well, we're saving money. 
No, you're not. Just send them to two class, maybe two extra classes a year, just to some, just to get some more shooting time. And that's all you need. But it's sad because you're, you know, NYPD isn't the only one. You know, Chicago police is the same way. I just got back from teaching some Chicago police officers, same way. They came through one of my courses. Chicago PD didn't pay for it. They did on their own because they wanted to improve. And it's, it's sad that right. that's still happening. Man. Right. Anyway, I know we're, we're getting off tangents. I still want to get back to the book, man. I see that we go everywhere. We don't stay on target. We're all. <laughs> um, but your brother, you, you know, if you can, I'm jumping back to the book. Um, you know, what in writing books myself every once in a while, or at least doing it poorly and then having an editor make it look pretty, um, make it, make it up. What made you want to, because we didn't really get into it. What made you want to write the book? What, and then when you started to do it, you know, was it just a, Hey, this is great. I'm going to keep going. Or, or was it a grind just to get it out there? Cause maybe bringing up some bad memories or good memories. Um, you know, what was your, what was your motivation just to, just to get it out there? Well, a, a lot of the things started out before I actually got deployed over to Iraq was I, I just wanted to like make a diary, so to speak and, and okay. talk about it and, process it. I, I mean, I know you know this being in, yeah. in, in, the, in the military, you don't just deploy. There's a lot of pre-training that you go yeah. to. <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of schools. Um, I'm back in school again, going to an explosive schools that was put on by a, a group called uh, HMS. And, uh, okay. you know, and I'm having to take tests again and learn about it. bombs being cell phone activated, pressure plates yeah. and infrared and all these things. And I'm like, okay, and uh, but so I said, all right, I'm just going to document that. And actually, one of the guys that was the he wasn't the program manager, but he was one of the assistant program managers um, suggested, you know what, maybe because of this project that and I'm jumping around. The project started. That's fine. No, that's fine. That's fine. Keep keep going. Jumping around. Okay. You fit right in, brother. Keep going around. You're good. The project started out. I was just going to go over to Iraq as a law enforcement advisor. I was just going to go over there okay. and look at things from a criminal perspective and see if I could help the commander or the battalion people, you know, kind of figure out how to, how to best approach this problem. Fast forward, I'm in this training in, in uh, Lansdowne, Virginia, and they grabbed me and two other guys, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm in trouble. I did something, or maybe they found something on my resume that they, they're not happy with. What I don't, who knows? You know what I mean? I don't ever, I don't, I, I know that sounds negative, but I don't necessarily assume that that's a good thing if they're calling me and two other guys into a classroom. Oh, yeah. Into an yeah, office. yeah, yeah. And they, they say, hey, listen, you're not in trouble. Sit back. We want to tell you about this program, which be became the, uh, the the Phoenix program. And we went over there and did actual yeah. counter ID. So prior to the arrival of the Phoenix team, and I'm talking about the team I was part of, it was all about defeat the device. And I don't have to tell you that, you know, the guys and girls were getting killed. Yeah. Over there. And that was a big, bad approach. Yeah. But yeah. guess what? From an equipment standpoint, you could sell all kinds of fancy shit to the military that cost billions of dollars with a B and none of that solves the actual problem of the bomb maker, no. the, the cell network behind that, the financiers, yeah. the safe houses yeah. and all the other things. So they finally decided, why don't we approach this from a criminal perspective, like an organized crime perspective? That's how I got involved in this program. And uh, so they pulled me out of the group. I want to say there was about 35 to 40 people in this group and they pulled me out and two other people then we go to a secondary meeting in in, um, in Crystal City, and they and they brief us on the program and they tell us about the program. And I'm like, I'm in. So now I went from like you know I'm just talking about myself, getting back to the book, talking about myself, what's going on in my life, knowing that I'm going to be in Iraq away from my kids and my wife for over a year, 
you know, to like, wow, this is going to be intense. And I, I'm like you, like, I, I, you know, I just call it g- generically, like we say guys means guys and girls. When I say soldiers, I mean just the troops, period. I, there's nobody that yeah. loves the soldier more than me. There's nobody that loves the cop more than me. And when I saw what was going on over there in terms of, you know, the way things were being prosecuted, the way the war was being prosecuted, I said, I got to I, I want to get I want to get knee deep in this and do whatever I can to change this this dynamic. And the team that I was a part of had some amazing, again, amazing people, super smart people that really like we rounded up 91 tier one targets. Now, I know you were in the special forces. I know you were in the Rangers. I know you were a contractor with the CIA. But I want you to imagine, put your military hat on for a second, that some colonel in, in a task force, and we'll just call it task force Troy in Baghdad, Iraq, is wondering how a yeah. bunch of 40 some odd year old men are taking down tier one targets that were already on the deck for six months. And he's yelling, the colonel is yelling at the lieutenant colonel, who is in turn yelling at the captain, who's knee deep now in the lieutenant's ass, saying, what is going on here? And who are these guys? So it wasn't by design. Obviously, we're not here to outshine anybody or embarrass anybody, but that was well, no, no. Yeah. But that was a direct cause and effect of how effective the program was. And one of the other things that became funny, like, and it's in the book, and I don't want to talk too much about it. It got to the point where I was on a base called Fob Falcon, which doesn't mean anything, but it was yeah. probably about 12 miles I, 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 of, of the green zone, you know? And uh, every now and then, you know, you hear helicopters coming in and coming out, you know, the, the, the Blackhawks. And I'd be walking around the base and we'd just be coming off mission now, like three or four o'clock in the morning. And I processed all the evidence and I did all the interrogation reports. And now, we're, you know, I'm walking from my my workspace to where I live, which between the two is where the helo pad is. And all these guys are all decked out in Gucci gear from SF. And they're like, hey, can you tell me where the detention facility is? And why do they want to know? Because they're coming to pick up the guy I just scooped up off the battlefield. So it's like, and this wasn't like a one, one off type of thing. This was happening with a great degree of fr- frequency and why it is or why. Did, yeah. Why, why it happened and, what, and how it happened. I mean, again, not by design, but that was, that was a, a reality of what was going on on the ground. Well, that, and that's, that's, if that was anything and it should show, and it's still, our leaders still don't learn that, that sometimes less oversight is okay. Letting people run and do what they need to do and not having them go through a chain. Cause again, I, I go back to the pond adage with the fish, just like that kernel. Well, why are we not being able to get the same results? Well, because they have to go through eight different people before they can even go do the, op. Yep. by that time yep. they're gone. And, and I, I remember, no, I, I remember cause I, I was working Blackwater would just started at the time there in Iraq. I remember work. I remember you guys. I do. I remember Falcon. I remember you guys. Um, and I do remember actually sometimes we were able to over because we didn't have any oversight at that time. either. as contractors. It was, it was great. It was a wild west at uh, having oversight, but, but having some o- overwatch where I, you guys Hey, we're going here. And you guys knew that we could get to you without having to go through a clearance if we needed to. And that's when we started to have people all over this country. And, and, and I, I, I saw you guys working. I mean, I did, I, I experienced that you guys were working and, and doing a great job. And, and it was, it was to me, it was like, what are NYPD guys doing here? Then I started talking to Don Kelly, who had since jumped from PD over to, to the contract where he started to let me know what was happening. 
and yeah, you guys, you guys were doing a tremendous job and it went down to, we would laugh all those army guys or military guys laugh like, well, they're doing a good job because they don't have some Oh three. That's got to ask an Oh four to go ask an Oh five to get the clearance to go from an Oh six or Oh seven to just to go do an op that's 10 minutes down the road. And it was, yeah, tremendous. I'll give you another, I'll give you another example as, as it relates to what I'm talking about, you know, like in the NYPD, like, you know, there's, when you do a search warrant, it's very, it's very planned out. It's very methodical. I mean, I don't want you to think that we were out there cowboying up because we, we had to answer to, to a lot of people and we had to deliver a nine line in the operation and the plan. Yeah. So when we went out, we did direct support for an actual army, conventional army unit at battalion level. And one of the units we supported was this unit called 122 TST, which was run by a guy named Sergeant Dave Peluso, who was phenomenal. But that trust and that bond didn't develop you know, instantaneously. But after a while, it got to the point where they would not go out and action a target without us. So because of this trust, this level of trust and their their ability to be, remain flexible, I've gone to as many as four different targets in one night, which is unheard of in the military. I mean, the the the, the big and you know this, Chris, because you, you've done you've lived and done this. The first hurdle you have to, to get over is can we get off the base? Can we actually option this? Can we actually? Yeah. The second hurdle is, can we get positive ID once we actually find the guy, if it's the guy at all that we're looking for in the targeting package, sure. which could be two pages or it could be three inches thick. It just depends on how long they're looking at this, this, this demon. So if, you, if I could satisfy the, the ground assault commander that this is, in fact, the guy, we have positive ID. And, oh, by the way, he's willing to tell us because he's really not a bad person. He loves the Americans. I'll tell you where my friend is. Uh, I would tell Dave this. He would tell the lieutenant, who was very idealistic and a great guy, uh, Lieutenant Supon, and we, we would flex to another target. And this went on. And like I said, I've gone to as many as four different targets in one night. That was the most I've ever done because by then you, the sun is coming back up and you're just completely wiped out sure. physically from, the, from, from all different elements, mentally, physically. You just can't function anymore, not optimally anyway. Yeah. But – as a direct result of that, coming back to the base, you know, these guys who thought they were just going to be doing basic combat patrols and route clearance and things like that, they are now, as you could imagine, Chris, the superstars of the base because they are like the guy, yeah. the cop that goes out and makes this big gun collar and there's a foot chase and all kinds of madness, and they're coming back like a peacock because they got this guy from the deck of cards. And, and, it, and then it happened many times. And I tell you what, being at the time when this was going on, I was 48 years old. When you get to see that in their eyes and that level of enthusiasm and commitment, it's amazing. Like the way it makes made me feel, and I know I'm not, I'm just speaking for myself now, but the team was this way too. It's a very gratifying and satisfying feeling to know that they are in the fight, that they feel like they're making a difference for their brothers and sisters. And it's a very, very yeah. unique experience that very few people get to experience. And I was very lucky to get You're to experience right. that with these guys. You're, and you're at an age too, bro. Not at an old age. Forty's not old. That's not old. But at that time, and and, and that uh, I honestly think that, that that young guys like myself, because at that time I would have been. What would I have been at that time? How long ago was that? Oh, two thousand. How what are we? Two thousand eight. So 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 yeah. So I, yeah, I'd I'd have been in my yeah shit. I would have been in my thirties. Uh, <clears throat> there were there were times you just looking up at. A gentleman in my 40s that when I was in my 40s, I had the younger guys looking up to me and and watching their motivation levels, but also you just figuring out, OK, motivation is one thing. Now I just got to go do my work and hopefully that motivates younger guys. I, I, I saw that transition 
and 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 having like yourselves i, I swear i bet we've even ran across each other um, i even know right. it i i swear i, I remember the phoenix program too i remember you said it like holy shit i haven't heard that word in a long time wow but that that was when i was you know relatively you know i, I started going to baghdad in 0304 but even going on and coming back just just watching the older guys and just get the job done. It may okay, let's just get the job done. All right. Maybe this bravado, a pop and circumstance. I don't need it anymore. Um, as I'm getting older, let's just go out there and knock it out of the park. And you guys, you guys did amazing. Um, uh, <clears throat> my thing is when you came back after you got done and again, get in the book a little bit, we don't want to give everybody the whole book away, but I, I discussed it. How was that when you came back? Cause I, I, you know, leaving for a year and getting back and reacclimating with your family is no joke. It's, it's, it's especially the first time you do it. Um, and how was that? And how was that back with the job? Were you guys welcome back with open arms or were you kind of, okay, these guys are too cool now, but we're going to ostracize them because maybe they've done things now that we can only dream. Cause I've seen both. I've seen it happen on both sides where you come back and you've even, even after Benghazi, I'll be honest, some guys we came back and yeah, Hey guys, great job. Others were giving us a side eye going, I don't know if it was a haters going to hate sort of thing or, uh, or so, but I think that's important too, because they'll think the battle ends there and stays in Iraq. And especially when you have a family, it doesn't, it comes, it comes home and it's always there. I, what was your mindset? And then how is that you know, today? How have you still maintained it? Cause you're writing the book. I'm sure it brought back a lot of, a lot of memories. How have you maintained the family life as well? I tell you, you work out with your son still. So obviously you have a good relationship with, with yeah. your son. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I think that's important to get into and talk about. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm blessed. I got a great wife and I have a great home life. I have great kids. Um, that's my right. daughter's out of school and she's getting involved in a master's uh, degree program. My son's got one more year of college. So I'm a little bit older than, than most people in, in the, in the family way. You're 30. You're not 35. I swear. <laughs> you're like I you're 35. Thank you're you. 30. God bless you. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, when I first came back home, of course you, you think, you think you're fine. Uh, I thought yeah. I was fine. And because of my primary job over there was an interrogator, you know, that that's a skill set that like it's perishable. So you got to kindly you got it's almost like playing a sport. you got to keep doing it if you want to re- maintain some level of fitness with it and, and effectiveness. And um, I came home and I was my wife said, why are you looking at me like that? Like when she would when I would ask her a question. <laughs> and of course, I'm not aware that I'm doing it, but I, I was doing it. And the same thing with my kids. And she said, you're scaring the kids. Will you cut that, cut the crap? You know, she's <laughs> yelling at me. you know, my wife's from New York too, you know? So, I mean, you know. I, mean I don't mean to be laughing, but I I can, I, I just am remembering a lot of things. That's it. Cause it is, it is comical, but it's not, but it is, it is, but it, I keep going. I, 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 I keep going. This is great. So fast, so fast forward, I'm in the movie theater and um, I'm with my son and we, we go see all the James Bond movies, all the action shoot 'em up movies. And the, the movie The Green Zone had come out with Matt Damon. Okay. Right? So I'm sitting in the movie theater watching it, and there's a scene where Matt Damon is in the green zone in full kit, walking by the pool, and some guy's chasing some girl in a bikini, and he's got a drink in his hand and blah, blah, blah. And he meets up with the CIA guy, and I can't remember the guy's name because he's in almost all his movies. He's a very prolific actor. Um, but he plays the CIA station chief. And Matt Damon is the idealistic warrant officer, and he's telling him about dry holes and intelligence is bad. So he walks into his office, and he goes here, and he throws him a duffel bag with a million dollars in it. And I remember, like, I, I, I said to my son, I go, 
That's exactly what the fuck is going on over there. They're fucking throwing money at the fucking problem. They're never going to solve this did, fucking problem. Did, did you you did that in the movie theater? So get people in the back saying, shut up, man. Just sit down. I, throw I was, and I was like, holy shit. Like, I'm in the movie theater. I, 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 I had no idea. That's how visceral I was so aggravated and so frustrated by that scene because I was in it. Yeah. And I'm looking at these because – because you know what I'm talking about. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we talked about it on the show before. Like, we, I think, oh, in a recent episode, we got into this. You know, we, we, we. I might miss happy hour on Thursday at five o'clock if I have a late meeting. Like, are you kidding me? There's people yeah. out there getting killed, blown up by with a roadside bomb. You're worried about happy hour, and and but yeah. the, the mindset of like we were saying, the academic, these people that are just sitting there. Complaining about, yeah, I'm separated from my wife. Meanwhile, they're three deep with different women that aren't their wife. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah. It's good. Like, yeah, yeah. But when I saw that scene, I just like, oh, my gosh. And then my son looked at me, and I I, I guess he was probably about 10 at the time when that happened. <laughs> when I so was you, 10, I was like, and thankfully, the movie theater, we went and saw a matinee, and there wasn't really that many people in there. It was probably about 35 good, okay. people. But um, I'm sure they all did this. <laughs> Someone looked over <laughs> like who's this nutbag? <laughs> but 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 you know you're right. I, I, that it, it it was and it was and it was it was hedonism almost. It really right. you come in and, and it was like a hedonism. If you especially if you were in Baghdad or you're at a big you're at a big base, you're a big embassy. Whether in Baghdad, Kabul even was kind of like that. If you're actually in Kabul at the main base, you know some of the outer bases no because there were less people there, but. I do remember Baghdad specifically talking. We, I can't remember, you're right, Ian, who we had on where they were, and I was there when they were talking about, you know, get the pool at night, drinking absinthe, and then throwing the air conditioners off the pool, off the off the dang diving board. And, and, and again, just the, that's what got me is, is, is all these, all the, I had one guy, especially who, who was messing around on his wife and, with one of the CIA case officers and she, his wife found out and she called him and he was all distraught and had to go home because his wife was going to divorce him. And I'm just thinking, well, dude, you've been laying three other girls here. What did you think was going to happen? And now you want to leave and make our team smaller because yeah, it, it, it really, it was, it was, it was okay. We're, we're doing, trying to do these great things here, but people are still making really stupid decisions and they didn't realize that it affected the team. It made you small, weaker at times. It could. I mean, we we lost him, uh, we lost him before an incident happened as well. And we we would have liked to have had that extra guy, but it was the it was it was the surrealness of okay, is this what is so wars look kind of like Mash then, like the TV show Mash, <laughs> where everybody's just kind of is that what's going on here? But then the money thing, we talked about that. Me and Ian on a lot of show. Where yeah, that's what I was thinking the, of. Of just throwing yeah, money at the problems. Yeah. We, we called the plan at, at the agency. We called it the plan. Well, what's the plan? Well, we're going to give them more plan to get the answers. So the plan is to give them plan. That was our code word for it. All right. So we're just going to take them a big bag of money, throw it at them. They're going to tell us what we want to hear because we're giving them money. Um, not that the Iranians or Russians are giving them money too, and they're working right. the system, but right. yeah, you college kids know what the hell's going on here. Give them more money. It, it was, it became a joke. It's like, like, well, let's let's go run our op tonight. What's the plan to give them more plan? All right, jump in the car. Let's go throw them some money. <laughs> it, it became sometimes ridiculous. Now that being said, we did have some good ones. We did, uh, but that was th- as Americans, that's what we thought solved the problems. And it's funny that you reaffirmed that because it's not funny, but it's. 
I'm glad you reaffirmed that because that's what we saw within the agency and State Department all the time as well. It's, it's just money. Money's going to make them tell us the truth. As an NYPD officer, I think you probably know better than anybody. Well, money just well, gets them to right. take money, and then they're going to get money from somebody else. <laughs> Here, here's how here's how it works in the good old NYPD. But again, what do I know? I mean, I'm just some dumb cop <laughs> from New York. But in the NYPD, you know, there, there's an expression: "No ticky, no shirty." So. If you, this criminal informant or confidential informant is working for you and his motivation is to provide you with intelligence or guns or drugs or whatever it is that he's doing, um, if he doesn't provide that, what he's promised that he's going to provide, he doesn't get paid. So fast forward to the CIA. Ah, oh, he's a nice guy. Give him money anyway for his trouble. He tried. No, we don't give money for people that try. We give money for people that provide information. Yeah, go. Okay. I'm in the yeah. human intelligence business, not in the in the welfare business. Okay, those guys are down the street. You can go see them if you want something for free. I don't give it out for free. You got to give me something. Okay, now don't don't misinterpret me. Every now and yeah. then, yeah. 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 you go to do a buy, and the guy doesn't show up. You might give him some money for his trouble. That's different than paying yeah. him what you promised him if he had bought a gun or if he had bought drugs or got the real information or things like that. You know, totally, totally, totally different. Fast forward, I'm in Iraq, and we're doing what they call tactical site exploitation, which is a fancy phrase for house search. Yeah. So you, I teach people this in, in a formal environment, both military and law enforcement, and the, the way I word it is you're looking for anything the size of a SIM card. So that means if you got to go through the hamper of somebody's dirty clothes, break out the rubber gloves because that's what we're looking for, okay? And they will hide it anywhere they can. So again, this going back to this team, one, two, two, TST and Sergeant Dave's guys, they, they are now learning how to do this. And now that instead of just being me and my team, it's a force multiplier and you show them how to do this. Well, now we're finding lots of $10,000 in U.S. $100 bills in serial number order. And this is a high value target tier one or tier two. So he clearly didn't steal this money. Somebody gave him this money. OK, so now you come back to the base and you've got this money, which makes me nervous because it becomes a very touchy subject in terms of custody. How much money am I going to count this? How's it going to be inventoried? You know what I mean? And I ran the property. So I know how to do this. I've, I've been doing this. I could do this in my sleep. But we're dealing with a big army now. And there's no mechanism to like kind of like deposit this money in a safe deposit box and let somebody else be responsible for it. You know, you understand what I'm saying? So I'm writing up the report. And I'm doing it based on the interrogation from this person, what he's telling me. Again, I write what this person tells me. I don't write what I think he wanted yeah. to tell me. I write exactly what he told me. And then I could do an in sum at the bottom and say the guy was forthcoming. He was he was deflecting or whatever it was his demeanor was, which is far and apart from what he actually told me. If he told me that he got the money from a friend, well, that's what I wrote, that he got it from a friend. But the friend is who? So now, because you've captured this guy, there's going to be a secondary interrogation. And they're going to find out whose money this is. Because the serial number is going to be, I gave Chris 1 through 10. I gave Ian, you know, uh, uh, 10 through 20. They know whose money this is. They know. They have an accounting system. They know. And these are the same people that are killing the soldiers. So it's very problematic if you're a commanding officer and this guy's got your commander's challenge coin. And he's got pictures of you on his wall of doing the man hug, okay? But yet he's bombing and killing the soldiers in your unit. That's problematic. 
But that's some of the frustrations that go on when you're in theater. Again, I'm not trying to out anybody. I'm not the internal affairs of no. the army. Yeah. But that's the reality of what's going on. And nobody is accountable. Believe me, this is all, this is a problem. This is going to go away. We're not going to discuss no, I, this anymore. But no, somebody I, I, reading, you know, and, and Chris knows this. Yeah. Somebody in Washington, D.C. is reading that report at the COIC. And they know what's going on. Yeah. They know well, exactly I, what's going on. Well, and, and, you know, get, getting into to Libya, that was huge. That was hugely part of that. Politicians were heavily involved in what we were doing there. and We shouldn't have been doing it. It wasn't to overthrow a, a dictator. It was uh, to do other things, to stabilize regions, give money to people who shouldn't be given, give money to weapon, give weapons to people that shouldn't have weapons over there. And, and it, it always comes down to the politi- politicians and political gains. And it's never about the patriots on the ground. I, I I believe that. I, I even I think I even said that on. I don't know where it came from. I must have had a Zen moment on the news one time when I used to be on it. But I, I even said, yeah, politicians put politics before patriots. That's part of it right there. And it does. Where wars and battles, things could even be stopped or they could be ended quickly uh, if they listen to the guys on the ground. But that's never going to happen because that's not the end state of why we're really ever in countries. We, it isn't. It, it and and um. Uh, you know, during that time frame there, even during that time frame where you were coming in later. And then that's something bigger of why we thought we were there was starting to end because we were people were like yourself and myself, myself, it took me that long to figure it out. We're starting to put it all together. Like, what the hell are we really doing here? Are we here to kill terrorists and catch bad guys? Or are we here to facilitate some political agenda? And, you know, of course, I'm an idiot and I just kept doing it for seven more years before I finally had to have something personal happen where I was like, okay, I, I'm done. This is, but it's amazing. Cause you're, you're spot on brother. You're, you're, you're spot on. You're not outing anybody politicians. They can be damn them. If that's what they're doing to hell with them. And I've, I've said it publicly and I've said it to a lot of their faces. You know, to eat, you guys can eat shit. I, I don't care what you think, but because you're right, that that's the, that's the God honest truth. But you know, we all go over there thinking it's our patriotic duty and we are doing it for good measure. That's what we want to do. We're there to protect our country. Um, but it, it turns into not by us, but by the ones above us. It does. It turns into, or or it always was. We just figure it out later that it's this is this is for agendas. It has nothing to do with 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 poly, with the uh, with the patriotism or protecting this nation. It's agendas and what can we do? I mean, shit. In, in Libya, there's a picture of of Hillary Clinton in the English speaking school there that never opened with her putting her arm around, uh, you know, a couple local Libyans and, and, you know, who knows what the hell they were really into at the time. And that's just, and that was right before the attack happened. So, um, yeah, bro, I, I, I agree with you, man. I, it's, I we're not, we're not going to end on a downer. I, I think I'm smiling because I'm like, God, you fucking nailed it right on the head. Bro. <laughs> you're, you're yeah, on. no, this, this has been a great interview, and there's actually one other Go, question yeah, yeah, I yeah. have personally. I don't know, Chris, is anything else before we wrap up? But I mean, you get into this in the book a little bit, but I think you know you would be the person people would want to hear this from. Um, after 9/11, I think it's been speculated a lot that the NYPD has probably taken down countless terror attacks yeah. that the public will never know about. Um, I mean, can you confirm that that's true as someone who's been on the ground? I, I will tell you this. I, I said it early on when, when we first started this interview. Um, I'll argue with anybody about the in, human intelligence collection capabilities of the NYPD. So just as an example for your audience, and, and, and maybe Chris knows or maybe you know the scene, I, I don't know. But there is an NYPD 
detective and sergeant in every major city around the world. I don't care if it's in the Middle East, if it's in Israel, if it's in Singapore, if it's in Spain, if it's in France, UK, Britain, Ireland, there is an NYPD sergeant and a detective and sometimes two of both working with the host nation's intelligence division of their, their respective law enforcement intelligence agency. And the reason for that is because 9-11 is a really direct byproduct of the, of the first World Trade Center, Center bombing in 93. Okay. Okay, and the people that were mining the store that had all this information and intelligence didn't share it with the local host people of the NYPD. Hence, we got punched in the face twice. So now we don't want to get punched in the face anymore. We get our intelligence from around the world in real time. So getting back to your question, have there been thwarted cases because of, of, of the NYPD's capabilities and their counterterrorism strategies? 100 percent. 100 percent. The ones that you see on the news, nine times out of 10, it's some kind of FBI sting operation where they basically introduce a fake bomb and get this guy to ch chat it up saying, I was going to blow up X building or whatever like that. The real work that is unseen where they do actual case takedowns like Zazie or the World Trade Center, uh, excuse me, um, the Times Square bombing, those are all very close to the best type of investigations. And those people aren't sitting around waiting to get the information. They have human sources that they are working every day. And these people get paid every day. So for an example, notionally, <clears throat> my budget was $50,000 a quarter to get information from people. And again, going back to what I said, no ticky, no shirty. I don't get information. You're not getting paid. Okay. <laughs> so I would blow through the $50,000 before the end of the second month. That's how much information is going. Now, I'm just in the in what they call the leads desk. So I'm at the very front end of this investigation. Once this investigation has legs and takes off, then it goes to a different unit. And I'm not going to get too down in the weeds with some of these other units and specialty units within the NYPD because you would fall out of your chair if I told you what they really do. OK, those people take the case and run with it. And then eventually, depending on how long it goes on and how quick and how many other people they want to round up that are part of this network, it could go on, go on for six months to a year and even longer. So, and I know this to be fact, and this is, I'm not just pulling this out of my, my hat to, to tell you this. I'm just telling you as a fact, it's true. Well, and that's a, brother, we knew that I knew that back in that day, we, we always knew there was, and I think they, you guys even had an office down in the embassy from the ambassador's details office and, and, yeah, it's when I learned about NYPD and what they were doing with the anti-terrorism stuff. And, and there was always a guy down range. Like I said, I, I swore we probably crossed paths with each other, not even knowing it in, in the building. But it, it's, wow. no, it's amazing because and that was always the word is, is that you guys were, were doing great things back in back when I was primarily in Iraq and not in the other countries. Um, and I, again, I just didn't work and pass NYPD guys too much when I was in Afghanistan or Yemen, Yemen or Libya, but it's mainly was Iraq. Um, but uh, just the, my last thing is, 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 and, and I know how good you guys do. I, I know because of your, your undercover work, which definitely helped in the uh, human side of it. Have you ever, or is the agency or NSA, do they send people to you to do any cross training? And, and if not, What's your reason? I mean, you tell me. I kind of have an idea why, but I, I want I would like your opinion on that as well. Well, 
I've done, I've done extensive training. I spent five years over in the Middle East, and I'm not going to get involved with the with the client sure. in terms of training training what we call HSO or human source operations, which would also include interview sure. and interrogation. So I I love it because to me it's like I get to be a cop but without actually going out on patrol, so to speak. And I but I love being the energy. I love sure. the energy of the of the cops, the intelligence officers, and it, it, it keeps me sharp. And I I mean. Other than my family, it probably gives me more satisfaction than anything that I do in life. But to answer your question more directly, um, I have not been approached by anybody. Um, I guess it's because I'm not as good as them. They're probably way, way better than me at doing this. And um, they couldn't possibly learn anything from a cop from New York about how to do this. Cert- certainly not somebody with my, my caliber. The, the, no, no, there's no patri- uh, there's no not patriotism, patri- patronizing of facial expressions or anything going on right now when he's what he's saying. But I completely agree with you. It is. It's it's an arrogance thing. It's like, hey, if you're really if you're really that confident in yourself, then you should be able to take training from anybody and you should seek that out. Always seek to get better. And to me, who who could teach you better how to interview interview people than people that have been interviewing bad guys? Doesn't have to be terrorists, just doing interviewing criminals and back for years. I I, I mean I I agree. I, I agree. And, you know, and again, I just want to bring this up. I I learned from sure. some of the best people, people that not only they write books sure. about, but they make movies, sure. movies about. In fact, one, a very, a very close friend of mine, uh, this fellow by the name of Tommy Dates, um, his book is, is called Friends of the Family. It's going to be made into a series with Terrence wow. Winters. Uh, and it's, it, it, you know, in, in terms of Italian organized crime. And how to interview and interrogate people, I learned from the best. So, again, to your point, I agree with you 100%. More training equals better policing, better intelligence gathering, different techniques. You, we can all learn something. Yeah, shooting yeah, is the same yeah, way. Yeah. And shoot, let me tell you something. Shooting is a perishable oh, yeah. skill set. You know as well as I do. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't shot in six months, you go out to the range and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, there's got to be something There's wrong with the gun. gun. It what can't hell, be me. Who, who messed with my gun? Who messed with my sights on my gun? Yeah, like, shit, nobody's messing. <laughs> nobody's messed with your sights, you idiot. Inter- interview and interrogation is exactly like that. There's like a rhythm. And moreover, it depends on the department. I like having a partner. I like having a second person in the room with me, either taking notes or, you know, doing nonverbal cues for me to say, hey, you missed, missed something or whatever like that. But that relationship doesn't happen overnight either. Yeah. So, you know, whereas you're a great, great shooter. I'm just using it, separating the two. Great in- interrogation interviewer, great shooter, okay? Now you have a second person with you doing the shooting instruction. If this guy is stealing your thunder and talking out of, out of school about something that you fundamentally disagree with, same thing happens in the interrogation right. room where the guy blurts out a question. You're like, hey, bro, I was going <laughs> to ask him that. Do I have a... I have a plan in my brain, but I just didn't want to ask it at that particular moment. Thank you for doing that, Captain Obvious. <laughs> you know, so but but these are all things that, you know, again, as we say, they take time. You don't just say, I'm gonna to go to Fort Wachuca yeah. at 19 years of age and I'm gonna be an interrogator in Iraq and think that you're gonna have the same result as somebody from any law, yeah. any law enforcement agency. I don't care if it's the NYPD or LA or whoever. It's just not realistic, but that's the expectation. Of this 19, 20 year old kid. Well, he went to interrogated school. Why isn't he? Why isn't he able to break this guy? Why can't he get more information? Well, because he's nineteen years old. 
That's why he's That's, not going to give it, me. Exper, experience always. He's not afraid of it. It does. Experience always trumps. I have both. I agree. I get both. But experience and wisdom always trump education. Education is good. But just yeah. you're lo- just living and working and learning from, which is learning from mistakes. I'm learning from mistakes. I know not to do that again. And then you get better and you get better down the line. Now I, I completely agree with you, brother. And I know we went long. I just, I wanted to ask that because I, you know, I, I think it's important and, and you, you're salty. I know mean, oh, you're a 35 year old, salty, salty <laughs> NYPD <laughs> Marine, uh, but I said, wisdom to me is the most important asset you can have um, in, in any line of work, combat related, intel related, you know, terrorist related criminal wisdom and experience and I guess I'm just I'm just looking for that verification again to our listeners out there. So they just continue, especially young guys out there. Keep learning and keep making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. And eventually you'll be 35 as well. And you'll, you'll be OK. You're going to have to be a little bit older now. I'm kidding. But uh, but and then eventually, yeah, you're going to you're going you're to have your skill set down. But it takes time and just be patient. It takes time. I'm still learning everything this day. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this has been an awesome interview, and, and I think people are going to love the book, Brooklyn to Baghdad, an NYPD intelligence cop fights terror in Iraq, um, co-written with Jerome Priestler and Michael Benson. And the cool thing about the book, too, is just like in the intro chapters of you going to the recruiting station at Roosevelt Field Mall, I'm like, <laughs> hey, that's right by me. So it was cool, like having that Long Island connection. Um, but yeah, this, yeah, this was great. And uh, anything else that you're promoting is just, just really the book? Anything else you want to get out there? I, I, you know, it, this whole COVID thing put a damper sure. on the yeah. speaking. I was, you know, all, all lined up to get out there. And as, as you guys know, everything's been virtual yeah. and Zoom yeah. and things like that. So, you know, if anyone is in your audience is interested in having me talk at a corporate event or law enforcement and military, I happily oblige them. They can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me through Facebook or, or Instagram or whatever it is, either my name, Christopher Strom or Brooklyn to Baghdad. I'm always interested and happy to get on a plane, especially now yeah. after a year of sitting around watching my kids, you know, and watch the grass grow. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to get back well, out and, you know, get in front of them. A real, awesome. a real audience, so to speak. Oh yeah. did finally. And if anybody, yeah. brother Finberry reaches out to me, I'll make sure to pass your information on to them. And um, yeah, cool. I, no, no, and so I, I agree with you, man, but fi- it's starting to open up. I'm starting to do some actually in-person speaking events. Now again, it's not just virtual stuff. So We'll, we'll keep your name going out there, brother, and and um, yeah, good luck to you. And it's 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 been great. It's been it's been great talking to you. That's all for this episode of the Battle Line Podcast. But we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk. Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. To sign up for future Battleline tactical courses, go to www.christantoperanto.net. Believe in yourself, face all challenges head on, and as always, never quit. <laughs>